for the opportunity to to uh, just take that time. I need a little bit of, of a breather, so glad to be back with you this morning. You, of course, I've got it on, I, I believe. Good morning. <laughs> How are you all? Glad to see you each. Uh, it was good to take a little bit of time off. I needed a little, little bit of a breather, and so Gabriel preached for the month of November. Uh, many have asked about how my wife Debbie is doing after surgery. She had surgery two weeks ago Thursday and is slowly recovering from rotator cuff surgery. I did not realize at the time, and none of us really realized at the time, how slow recovery from such surgery is. And she has to have that immobile for six weeks until she even begins to start uh, doing anything with that. So uh, many have asked about her, and I wanted to thank you for your prayer on her behalf. On uh, October 31st at Ankeny Baptist Church, and I know not everyone uh, is present here today at Northridge Baptist Church, but on October 31st, Debbie and I announced to our church family that I will be retiring from ministry as senior pastor uh, at the end of June 2022. And then uh, what I will begin doing is beginning in February, I will begin assuming some responsibilities on behalf of the General Association of Regular Baptist Churches. Because of that, I will necessarily uh, have to uh, probably, not probably, I will uh, segue out of pulpit ministry here I'll preach uh, here at Northridge through January 16th, and then there will be other provisions made. We as a church will continue in assisting ministry. We want you to know that that will will continue, and uh, I will continue to help and serve on the steering committee. I will help oversee a number of things that relate to both our assisting ministry here at church and also will continue uh, my oversight ministry at Ankeny Baptist. So I know that you'll appreciate your prayer. I know that Maybe uh, it's always interesting how young people view you. Now, older folks, we kind of judge each other. I I often like to ask little kids, how old do you think pastor is? And they give me these wild uh, conjectures about how old I am. Some almost come up to the point where uh, I'm Methuselah's age, which was 969, if you remember. And others say, well, pastor, you're only 30 years old. And I say, yeah, I would take that. But I I did turn 67 in October, and uh, really feel, both Debbie and I feel it's, a, it's, it's the right time for both the church and for, uh, for us to make that transition. We will be very active in prayer and encouragement uh, for you as a church family. I want you to know that has nothing to do with, with some of the responsibilities I've had here. It's been really, to be honest with you, a great delight. It's been a stretching and a good opportunity uh, for me to speak to you and be able to uh, preach the Word of God. I, I, uh, I, I regularly write out in fairly uh, significant detail the uh, prayer things that I walk through each day, each week, each month. And one of the things that I've been thanking the Lord for is that God has given me here these last months since June the privilege of, pre- of preaching to two congregations. And so that is a delight to do that. And uh, we, we would invite your prayer for us as we make that transition. We certainly will be active in ministry and prayer uh, for you. You'll see over here that you're going to be having communion uh, here uh, following my departure. 
Now, likewise, we at Ankeny Baptist Church will be observing the Lord's table. Take your Bible, and I'm going to do a couple different things here across the month of December and even this morning. It's going to kind of be a mishmash of ideas. We'll look at 1 John uh, chapter 4. We'll look at Luke chapter 1. But especially I want you to look at 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. Let me at least allude to some things and let your eyes so that you can be adequately prepared for entry uh, to observe the Lord's table this morning. And I would remind you of six things. This is not on the outline. You'll have to take notes if you want to remember these. This is all... Uh, I should have put a big block there for introduction. Uh, here are six things I want you to know from 1 Corinthians 10 and 1 Corinthians 11 about the Lord's table. I, I would want you to remember that the Lord's table is a place of remembrance. It is a place that we come in order to remember. He said, when you do this, he said, I want you to come together and I want you to do that in order that you might declare that you might remember the work of Christ for, uh, for you. I tend to forget. I tend to forget even important things. The Lord's table is a place, is a law given really to the church, to believers, in order that we would never forget. You may remember some uh, for a, a while had a slogan following 9-11. And it simply would show the ruins of 9-11 with a flag that was erected there at the ruins. And the simple phrase was, never forget. But really there's something else that God has done in order that we would not forget, which is he has ordained that we as a church would come to the Lord's table, we would eat and drink, and we would Remember the Lord's death and do that till he comes. 1 Corinthians 10.16 says, The cup of blessing which we bless is it not communion of the blood of Christ. The Lord's table is a place of communion with Christ. Now, I know that some question that. Of course, um, the, the elements, and I would just ask you to remember this, uh, Lutherans and Catholics misunderstand the nature of the elements. They say somehow that, that Christ is mystically present in the elements, either that he is with the elements or that the elements themselves are transformed into the blood and the body of Christ. We, of course, know them to be symbolic. However, in the act of eating and drinking, we do enter a very unique place of communion a fellowship with Christ. Would you also see, even from the very uh, text, 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 17, for though we are many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Uh, the Lord's table is a place of communion with Christ together. It's not merely that I enter the table and gain fellowship with God, but we together come as a church family. Uh, rightly understood, the Lord's table is a local church ordinance. It's not something that families do. It's not something that an individual believer does. It's something that the body of Christ gathers together, and in that body we come together to the Lord's table. The Lord's table is a place of renewed loyalty. You'll notice it in verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 10. Therefore, my, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And then, just a little later in this text, verse 18, 
observe Israel after the flesh are not those who eat the sacrifice, eat eat of the sacrifices, partakers of the altar. What what am I saying then? That an idol is anything, or what is offered to idols is anything. Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Certainly the Lord's table is a place of renewed loyalty. At the Lord's table we reaffirm our loyalty to Christ. It's later, that's why Paul, the next chapter, says... Let a man therefore examine himself so that when he eats and when he drinks, he would not eat and drink discipline to himself. So as an extension of that, number four, I guess I've got seven things. This is number five. It is a place of confession. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 28 through 31. Let a man examine himself. I I have this idea that when we come with contrite hearts and ask God to examine our hearts, does he find any sin present in our lives? Does he find wrong actions? Does he find a grumbling, discontented spirit at times? Does, does he find purposes that are, not, that are not exactly aligned with the purposes of God? Does he find attitudes that do not honor Christ? I've occasionally mentioned that when I go to the dentist, Though I scrub my teeth very carefully each time I go, inevitably when I go to the dentist, he is able to find all kinds of uh, uh, foreign material in my mouth. I think if God looks at my heart, even though we know Christ and have a basic desire to honor Christ, uh, that when we ask him to examine our, our, our life, that there is the reality of sin. That sin brought to light means we confess sins. One of the greatest simple texts, it's one that Gabriel handled quite a little while ago, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is also a place of declaration. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. you declare, you proclaim, you show the Lord's death until he comes. Quite literally, when you together as a church family eat and when you drink, you are preaching the gospel of Christ, that Jesus is our all-sufficient Savior, that he is the one who fully paid for our sins. And then lastly, number seven, it's a place of anticipation. We do this until the Lord comes. I Every time I read the newspaper, every time I deal with difficult events in my life or in the lives of others, I see some of the, uh, some of the world that tends to uh, spiral out of control in our world. We, we are driven to look forward to the coming of Christ. And so we examine ourselves, we eat and we drink, and we do that until the day of Christ's coming. So when you come to the table this morning, remember... Fellowship with Christ. Fellowship with Christ as a body of believers. Renew your loyalty. Confess your sins. Declare the work of Christ. And do that anticipating, expecting the coming return of Christ. 
How many of you would frankly admit that you enjoy watching Hallmark movies? Do any of you enjoy watching Hallmark Christmas movies? I want to suggest to you that life is not a Hallmark movie. As we move into the Christmas season, uh, celebration of the coming eternal sun inevitably tugs at the, at the heart of even the most curmudgeonly, the most uh, 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 bah humbug kind of person you might see. I mean, who, who can, in our culture, although you understand even like Sean mentioned, some of the things that uh, get merged together in a Christmas carol are not exactly accurate. Uh, uh, one of my favorite hymns is uh, In the Bleak Midwinter. One, one, of the, one of the lines goes, snow has fallen snow on snow. And the imagery, of course, is that when Jesus was born, that snow fell. You understand, it rarely snows in Palestine. And it's very, very likely that it did not snow the, around the birth of Christ. Uh, I, I was in Jerusalem years ago uh, when it, it, it began to snow. We were there in February. And, and literally people ran out of everywhere because they so seldom see snow. Uh, so, so some of the imagery, some of the sentimentality of the Christmas season is a more a fanciful modern invention than what we find in the scriptures. So when I think of, of the reason for Christmas, what is the Christmas message? I, I would simply put it this way. God loves sinners. God loves sinners. If you have your Bible, and I'll bounce between two texts today, but really through the month of December, I want to speak from really and expand on 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10. In this the love of God was manifested, 1 John 4, 9. How do you know that you love someone? How do we know that God loves us? In this the love of God was manifested. He said that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this uh, is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God shows his love to sinners, first of all, in the son's incarnation. Now you look at 1 John 4.16, just nearby in your Bible, 1 John 4.16, you'll see the little phrase and perhaps underscore it, God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Now the statement God is love is more a summation than it is an expression of the totality of God. The statement, of course, is not saying that God is only love. He's not, this is not the statement of his entire uh, essence. We understand, for example, that God is holy. God is just. He is righteous. He is infinite. He is spirit. The statement God is love really presupposes that God uh, what, what John, even in his epistle, has said of God himself. And you could 
For example, go back to 1 John 1 and uh, remember, I think it's verse 5 where it says God is light. And, And what's trying to be communicated in that metaphor is something of the essential nature of God's holiness and his purity. God is holy. The God of whom John speaks is the God, for example, who judged the world in the the Noahic flood. He is the God who chastened his covenant people, Israel. He is the God who sent his son and treated him exactly like he should treat every sinner. That is, he put him to death. He exercised the full measure of his holiness against his own son. One wrote of this text, it is not possible to argue that a God who is love cannot also be a God who condemns and punishes the disobedient. For it is precisely God who does these very things of which John is speaking. So God is love. But let's define the love of God. And you, I think on your outline, you have a longer definition. But let me just pick apart a couple of ideas Uh, It's really interesting, and for 10 years I taught as adjunct faculty at uh, Faith Baptist Bible College, and I would regularly ask my upper-level junior and senior students, tell me, please, what does it mean to love God? Such a simple concept, and yet it was really interesting to hear the ideas that came and what little understanding we commonly have about what it means to love God. One wrote of this that love generally is that principle which leads one moral being to desire and delight in another. And why would have you focus on love is desire and delight in another. Love is desire and delight in another. And you'll see the definition, and reaches its highest form in personal fellowship together. In other words, we like to spend time with each other. I can remember, now Debbie and I dated back many, many, many aeons ago, many years ago. We, we, I was away at Bible college, she was home working, and so pre-internet, uh, pre-cheap phone calls. There was one phone booth for a full dorm of guys. And uh, it, literally, because you're... Now, this is so... Probably you young people don't, don't even understand this. That it literally was very expensive to call. But on weekends, it was cheaper to call. So there would be literally a line of guys out in the dormitory trying to use the one phone so that we could call our loved ones. And we actually wrote, hand-wrote letters back and forth, two or three letters a week that we would write letters and we would send them back and forth. And it was filled with all kinds of gushy stuff and all kinds of uh, expressions of love for each other. And Why did we do that? Well, because we had a longing to interact with each other. And its absence brought, brought that sense of separation. You see, love is uh, having desire and delight in another and reaches its highest point in spending time in fellowship and finds joy 
here's the interesting thing, finds joy in imparting ourselves to the other person. So if I were to just for the moment, and those who aren't married can just tune out for just a brief moment, so I'll talk to Sean, not, not Sean's son, yet. That's why husbands are to love their wives like Christ loved the church. And so a good husband, godly husband, quite literally has the desire and the delight in that person so that they're spending time together. And there's also the, the joy in giving of ourselves to our spouse because we love them. Now, when I begin to think about this, I do want you to think about the, 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 the magnificence of the love of God for sinners. And I could take any of the married couples here today, but since I know Gabriel and Brenna best of anyone, we'll take Gabriel and Brenna. You've been married how many years, Gabriel? A little, little over two years. Man, you guys are really still rookies. Uh, I don't think, let me just say about Brenna. Brenna did not, I don't think, look for the most despicable, the most unworthy, the most vile a young man in which to place her future life. She rather saw attractive qualities, handsome, smart, uh, strong, all the, all the different things that we begin to admire about a person that draw us to a person. Now think of what God looks at when he looks at sinners. Does he see anything worthy in them? Does he see anything commendable in them? Or rather, do we believe the biblical truth of total depravity that when, when we look at humanity, that humanity, men and women, children that there is nothing in them that is good. There's nothing that would inspire God from us to love us. First John, or excuse me, Romans chapter 5, verse 6. Do you remember Romans 5, 6? When we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Or Romans 5, 8. God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners. He died for us. God is love. And God manifests his love through his goodness to sinners. God's love is defined. But look, God's love is an expression of his goodness. I think one of the simplest phrases, keep rolling that on. I'm a, I'm a little ahead of you now. Yep, there we go. Uh, you understand the Bible will often give general statements and then fill them out in greater detail. And so a general statement, and it's really all over the Bible. Uh, just this morning, I happened to stumble across another one in my personal Bible reading from Second Chronicles 5.13. Solomon had finished the temple. All of the all of the raw materials have been used to fashion that magnificent dwelling place of God. And they brought the ark into the temple and there was the expression of worship of God and it was very simple. Second Chronicles 5.13 For he, the Lord, is good. His mercy endures forever. 
That's the simple statement of the goodness of God. But I would see, letter B, God's goodness is expressed in his mercy and grace. And then, letter C, it is expressed in his mercy and grace by the incarnation. Incarnation, of course, you know, means the enfleshment, the the movement of the eternal Son of God becoming humanity. Now, with that in mind, turn in brief fashion, simply to allude to it, turn to Luke chapter 1 in the birth narrative, Luke's birth narrative. If you have your Bible there, and, and, and see there in Luke chapter 1 and verses 28 and 30. And just see this. And having come in, the angel said to Mary, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. Verse 30, Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Or I would simply put it in this way, the the word favor in both of those cases, we, we might and, and one translator put it that Mary was highly graced. Was highly graced. And he said to Mary, Blessed are you among women. Now, understand that this is a little unique for Mary. Because Mary is actually going to bear, that is within her womb, have the eternal Son of God made flesh, and not by any immoral act, but rather by a miracle of the Holy Spirit. But generally, let me help you understand and indicate that when Christ comes and is present, we are highly graced. Now, again, this is not on your outline, but just help me do this. Just even jot it down on your outline. Your one word synonym for grace would be what? Would be kindness or favor. Maybe the two word definition that you would use of grace. It's the undeserved favor of God. We, we would then expand it and say it's the undeserved favor of God in the person Jesus Christ. I'll quote a number of these verses, but many of you probably, probably could quote with me John 1.14. The Word was made flesh, that is, He became fully human. The Word was made flesh. He lived among us, and we beheld His glory, that is, the glory of God the Father, and what was He full of? He was full of grace and truth. You see, the the, the real meaning, the, the real essence, the real Christmas message is that God loves sinners and he loves sinners so much that he sent his only begotten son into the world. In this, the love of God was manifested that he sent his only begotten son. I know that's really, really simple. In in coming weeks, I'll give some more expansion of that idea. 
I, I would want you to remember that Christmas is not all about a wonderful sentimental feeling where we all get to go home and sit around a, 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 a roaring fireplace that, that we get to drink hot chocolate together and enjoy the, the, the sentimentality of family and friends. It's not about, and I can remember doing this as a, as a young person. It was about a mile and a half walk from school to my home, and I would end basketball practice, and, but I would walk home with several people. One of, I think one of them at one point was even my wife, Debbie, and the snow in my little town would fall straight down. I, snow in Iowa does not fall straight down. Do you notice that? In New York, it falls straight down. And, and, and we'd walk that, just that pleasant, you know, just the, just the aura of what it's like at Christmas time. That's not, that's not the essence of Christmas. The essence of Christmas is that God loves me a sinner. And that he loves me so much, he sent the eternal Son of God, equal with the Father, equal with the Spirit. He humbled him by having him become human by a miracle of the Spirit of God so that he could give us grace in his work at Calvary. That's exactly what we celebrate in a few moments when we eat and drink partake of the elements, and we declare the Lord's death, and we do that until he comes. The central essence, I mean the key focus of our Christmas celebration, is nothing other than the fact that God loves me, a sinner. I know that that's very simple. I, I know that uh, it's really important. There are occasions now. I, I am becoming more sentimental in my older age. Not, I'm not old, but in my older age. You know, it's good for, good for married couples to review some things. So, so Debbie and I, once in a while, we'll get out our picture, old picture albums, non-digital, actual uh, picture photos that we walk through. I happen to stumble uh, across a good friend of mine died this past week, and he was uh, one of my groomsmen. And uh, so, so online there were pictures that just refreshed even some of our relationship together to, to rehearse and remember. And and some of the basic essence of uh, life really needs to be reviewed. The simple essence to, to say that God loves. Sinners. God loves you. And he sent his only begotten son into the world to manifest that. And I would remind you, does God love sinners who are not in this building today? Does God love sinners who would deny him this moment, would hate him? Does he desire yet to bring them to Christ? And the answer, of course, is yes. God is not willing that any would perish, but that all should come to repentance to a knowledge of the truth. So with all of the cultural clutter, even all of the memories we have of Christmas's past, here is the essence of God's love for us. 
He loves sinners. And he manifests that by the sending of his son into our world. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of being able to gather today. I pray your special blessing upon this church family. Give encouragement and grace to them. Lord, even as they come together to the Lord's table, help them to simply see the the great, simple essence that you love us as sinners. We're so thankful that Jesus came to earth to die for our sins, and this day we want glory and honor to be Christ's. We pray this together in Jesus' name.